that I am of more value to God than the sparrows in the grass. I honestly really struggle with it. I do not feel valuable to God. And my life, though blessed with things like baptism, the supper, a great family, a life without murder and tremendous violence and things like that, nonetheless, the condition of my heart is such that what I have found in my life is plenty of shame. Shame which tells me that I am not worthy to believe these words when Jesus says them, that they are for everybody else. And I even preach it that way. I can preach it to you. I just can't preach it to me. But I'm going to preach it to you because it's so important. It's the most important thing that there is. It's for you to know that you are of value to God. Forget right and wrong for a minute. Forget moral things you must do. Forget plans. Forget the future. God is for you. He wants you. He considers you to be more special than the rest of this disgusting, flailing, dying, going to hell age. You were like this age, but you've been called by him. And for all of your own heart's incurved condition, you've heard it. And you said, yes, please. And amen. And so I tell you, what I can't know, but you can, which is that you are of such value to God that nothing shall ever stand between you and him. And every time something appears to, you're just wrong. He's actually still for you. You just haven't learned to see it yet. Because your eye is dark. And this is where the words of the gospel reading from Matthew 6 today, before he talks about how much he loves us and how certain we can be, that he's taking care of the grass. And we're way more important than the grass. You personally are way more important than all the birds there ever were because you're a human. You're a descendant of Adam. And Adam is the glorious, muddy crown of this entire cosmos. More than this now, not only part of Adam who rebelled against God, but now regenerate, called, enlightened, sanctified, and fed with the true word and sacraments that are Jesus, you are also Christ. You sang it. You sang it moments ago. Where was it? I'm going to search for it now. It's in, the, it's in the, the psalm for the day where he talks about his anointed. There it is. Jesus Christ is the saving, is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Anointed. That's Messiah in Hebrew. That's Christ. He is the saving refuge of his Christs. Plural. Because Christ, the king, is but the first fruits of an entire age of nothing but Christs. That is, members of his body. A new humanity. People in whom the Holy Spirit of God has restored the true image of God, which again is simply to know that God is for you, not against you. That he, though a God of justice and wrath, is first a God of giving goodness, love, mercy, and nothing but unconditional love. And even his wrath then right now is meant to bend you back from the pit of hell you would cast yourself into. 
by believing that you need to prove yourself to him. By having to prove yourself to God, you prepare your own hell. And Christ comes so that you need no longer prove a damned thing. But instead you may confess a blessed thing. Which is that Christ is sufficient. That all of us who have been baptized into his death have been baptized into his resurrection. That even as he has died for all men and risen never to die again, so you, because you are in him, can not die. When you die, it will not be death. Your body will feel like it's about to die. You might be in a lot of pain. There might be all sorts of doctors doing all sorts of things. But the moment that you die, you will not be dead. In fact, you'll be more free than you've ever been. Because the pain and the sin and the fear were all vanished in a moment of glorious transcendence into what? Christ. Into a full understanding of his mind. Into seeing the way he sees. And this is without counting the fact that after this, if, if he tarries longer, he will put you back into a body with eyes made of light. Have you caught this part of Revelation? No sun, no moon, no stars. But the lamb at the center will be their light. So if, if we take that seriously, and, and granted, Revelation sometimes does speak symbolically, quite a bit really. But take it seriously for a minute and imagine a city wherein the king is the only light in the universe. Can you picture that? How weird that would be? Like he can't stay inside, right? Does he have to fly? How does the light get to us? And let me suggest to you something from the transfiguration. You remember when, when he transfigured on the mountain, his clothes didn't block the light? His clothes reflected the light out. So imagine the city wherein all the light from the king on the throne, everything it hits, it just goes and pushes forward, even your eyeballs. So when you see the light of Christ, you look and you see with the light of Christ. Now again, Romans chapter 6, it says, This newness of life is yours now by faith alone. You will not get to experience the carnal man backing off. You will not to experience the flesh ceasing to attack you. You will not cease to experience the world telling you it's all a lie and you're no good and you're not worth it and God wants you to do this instead and other people are right about that. None of that's going to stop. But you will have words that are different than those words. And those words are, he is risen. You are paid for. And that makes you immortal now, and he's not going to belong anyway. So last service, I tried to go through this, this text from Jesus, uh, Matthew 6, lamp in the eye of the body. I got about, what, half a verse in, I think. I mean, it was, it was a good 20 minutes, too. There's so much here in this for us to recognize and see that how you hear, how you see, how what comes into you forms you will change what you hear and see next. So if you spend all week listening to one type of person who says this and says that and says this and says that, eventually, whether or not you want to or not, you're going to say this and that too. Humans just aren't strong enough to like resist the community herd effect. We're herd animals. We're pack animals. And we submit to the group for the sake of survival. That's a good thing. But then when the group becomes evil, that's a bad thing, right? And what, again, the promise of Christ is, is that he will build a good thing. He will build a community of people who are coming out of the evil, calling it in themselves the entire way, but also looking for that day when it will be removed because it has been removed in him. That's newness of life. 
To be able to know that this week I didn't live up to it. This week I didn't do what I should do. This week I'm a hypocrite. I tell you, I really am. This week I thought about myself way too much. This week I didn't help people I could have because I couldn't see them. I was too busy in my own head. This week, I was too busy worried about finances. This week, I was too busy worried about politics. This week, I was too busy worried about my own glory. And so as a result, I don't deserve to be here. I shouldn't be telling you how to be Christians. And yet, I am. Why? Because Jesus sent me. Because no matter how I feel, he is enough for me. Whether I ever get to feel, it doesn't matter. That's faith. The word's true. I'm not. I feel bad. Word says good. Truth is good. I'll take that. That's not easy. I'm telling you, it's not easy. It's not fun. It's not the kind of thing I can sell to sixth graders and tell them it'll be a great life. But it is true. And it is real. And those chains which you hide behind your idols, they can begin to at the very least be seen and repented of. So you can stand up, you can say, yeah, my eye is dark. You can maybe even know why. You might be able to reach up and turn off that thing that's making you dark. Let me just suggest to you, if you spend 15 minutes a week watching, reading, imbibing anything that's not just a book, anything that goes electronic and digital, 15 minutes. For every 15 minutes you do that, you really ought to read a psalm at least. Uh, Two hours, three Just going to go check the newspapers, see what they're all saying out there? Okay, do you know you're just listening to the liars? They're the liars whose consciences are seared, who have an investment in scaring you into staying in where they tell you to go so they can continue to make their money because they think that's all it's about right now. And you, knowing it's about the future, are willing to let them lie to you. And that's where we got to stop. For too long, we've been willing to let them lie to us and think they meant good. Let me give you an example here from a story I've heard recently, uh, which is this. Uh, This comes from a gentleman named Stanley Hauerwas. He's a fairly famous theologian. But but the story is that he's been in uh, connection with a great number of Jewish people, particularly because as a Christian, uh, as a pastor, his church on the East Coast was next door to a pretty affluent, successful synagogue. And so he would talk with the rabbi sometimes. and, And the rabbi at one point complained to him. He said, you know, it's really hard to be a Jew. Okay, I'll believe you. Um, but why, why? What he said was, our children always feel like they don't belong. Jewish mothers have to tell their children, well, I know your friends are doing that, but you can't because you're special, because you're a Jew. And he said, it's so nice for you Christians, you don't have to do that. It must be nice and easy. Well, The fruit of not doing that is showing. We're at a point now where if you don't tell your children they're different than everybody else because they're baptized into Jesus, he's going to raise them from the dead and everyone else is going to go to hell because they want to. If you don't tell them that, they're not going to believe you by the time they're done with the brainwashing. You're going to send them through the ringer. School, programs, TV, sports, you get what? 30 minutes a day. They get what? Eight, 10 hours a day. Again, the question is, how do you have a light in your eyes? And the answer is light must be shown to you. And so if all you see is darkness, if the only people you listen to are those you can't trust, and even if you know it, you know when you turn on the news, it's spun. You know it can't be trusted. That doesn't mean never turn it on, but it does mean how much time do you spend listening to half-truths? That's the question. 
And the more time you do, the darker your eye will be. This does not mean Jesus doesn't love you. It simply means you're going to run into stuff. You're going to bump your head. You're going to stub your toe. You're going to do foolish things and get hurt by it. And he's saying this because he knows this is true for all of us. Not a single one of us in the world doesn't fall under this condition. And so the real glory in all of this is this amazing thing called repentance. I'm not sure I'm good at talking about this yet. I can tell you about it. I can tell you all the theory. But the experience of repentance is one that I'll just say it's, it's been lacking in things I've seen in the life of the church in my 15 years in the church. What I see most often when someone's wrong in the church, pastor people doesn't matter, is we defend ourselves. That's what I see. And I see people arguing about, say, worship styles, arguing about communion practices, arguing about abortion. All these things go back and forth, and we talk about them as if we have some ability to make decisions about these things. When we don't, when the fact is that we are either in Jesus or not, our eyes are enlightened by his word or they are not. And to know then from the start by yourself, they're not light. That's the first step of wisdom. That when you see, you see a lie. When you listen, you listen to lies because you want to. Because you're an idolater at heart. Because you cannot save yourself. And that's really what it means to be a sinner, regardless of what other other things you've ever done. Owning that is Jesus' point here, so that you might hear it when he says to you, I'm going to give you light. Your eye is dark, mine's not. You can't see, I can. And I'll tell you what, what do you see? A God who says you got to go work harder. What do I say? I'm a God who's going to save you because I love you. So hang tight, hold on, trust me. Hmm. Because if the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? I'll tell you again, another story. Um, this one should be in our Mad Mondays newsletter that goes out. It's a bit of a political newsletter I'm involved with. But not really political, but it, it focuses on Christian thought in the present age. And we try to capture as much news as we can that is important to Christians. And you can go and link to it and read it on the site. One of the things I hope to have in it tomorrow is a choral piece, a music piece. Um, although I know it's been getting moved around and sometimes taken down. And so the internet's weird like that. It can exist and go away and so forth. But this particular thing is a virtual choir uh, or at least a, 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 a studio choir piece where they got together and they, they professionally performed this thing. It is uh, a choir out of San Francisco and they are officially a, a gay choir. So to be part of the choir, they're going to be connected to the homosexual movement in some way. And the song is largely about how they're going to come for your kids. That's actually what the song's about. We're coming for your kids. I had another question this week that was this. Hey, Pastor, we say, come Lord Jesus at the table. And we say, now I lay me down to sleep at night. Is that good enough? I think about that song, we're coming for your kids. And all that got is come Lord Jesus and now I lay me down to sleep. No, I don't think it's good enough. I don't think we're ready for what they're going to be saying to us. And you will have to be prepared for the TV in all your friends' houses to be saying one thing and for you to say to yourself, no, 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 no. Bible, Bible, I remember. I haven't forgotten yet. That's why you come here. You come to this church for that, for that and for him, for the knowledge that he's always here in this supper, that he's always here to feed you, that he's never going to leave or forsake. You come for that. Huh? And so again, the text is to recognize the darkness when you see it. And then don't let them turn your eyes back into dark eyes. Don't watch their constant mediums. 
Don't let their witchcraft and their powers twist your mind so you expect a different world than the one that really is. And then over the course of 40 or 50 years, have your soul dangled along like we've seen in this society. 50 years ago, you would not believe for a moment that we'd be giving hormone treatments to little children to turn them into opposite sexes. You wouldn't believe for it. You would have called that insane. And now they call you insane. The power of idolatry is really something. And it's one thing that as Christians, we want to begin thinking about again, right? What is idolatry? It is to place your hope, trust, and fear into something that's not the true God. Now, the way that this works is that as a Christian, you actually can't have idols. It's impossible. You shall have no other gods. He said so. I know it's a commandment. It's also a promise. Now, granted, your flesh, your sinful condition, it's not really on board with all of this. And every day you wake up and it fights back. And you're there to not let it be the idolater you're born as. To be born again in the memory of Jesus Christ. And to stand as one who puts that flesh down. Idolatry, though, for the non-Christian, is unavoidable. So as a Christian, you can't be an idolater, but you always will have them. And your life is about trying to fight them, to resist them. But for all non-Christians, that's all they got. There's no not idolatry. There's only idolatry. There's no not worship. There's only worship. So when you go out to eat, you're surrounded by people worshiping, unless they're Christians. When you go to a sporting event, you're surrounded by people worshiping, unless they're Christians. And the things they are worshiping are idols. You look at it, you say, well, that's just a basketball hoop. Correct. It's just metal and net. Nothing special at all. And yet look at the power we all attribute to this idol. Look at the hope and trust we put in this idol. That's what makes it an idol. It's not the thing itself, but it's what we do with it with our hearts. And again, as a Christian, you have that flesh, but you also know the promise you cannot have it. You cannot be an idolater. And God's going to keep punching you, honestly, until you see it and repent. For the non-Christian, it's all they got. Nothing but idolatry, which is, again, why you can't let them teach you. If you listen to evil men, you will become like them. Straight up. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. If the eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Who are you watching? Who are you listening to? More Jesus. More red letters. More Psalms. Always is the antidote. He moves on to talk about serving two masters. And so the idea of idolatry here, again, summed up in money or mammon. That you're either in the religion that Jesus is working for your salvation, or you're not. And if you're not, you're serving this age. You can call it mammon, you can call it money, you can call it your belly, it doesn't matter. It's your flesh. You're not with the true God, you're with the devil. Hmm. You can't serve both. And trying to have one foot in each side, it only pulls you back into the grave. It pulls you back into the devil's way. And again, that's his point. You will hate God if you strive to love this world as this world loves this world. It's going to happen. And if you hate this world for its worldliness, for its evil, for its lack of righteousness and mercy, guess what? Jesus is awesome. You're going to like that guy because he's the kind of God you want. He's exactly the kind of God that won't let a world like this be this way. Not only in terms of he's going to put an end to the evil, 
But that the way he does that is by saving you who were. Again, the beauty of this, the power of this. What I don't want today is for you to hear me telling you a bunch of what you should be. Because you aren't yet and you need to try. That's the part that we want to kill. We don't want any of that. What we want is to know what you are because Jesus said so. And then when you find that you don't look like that, that you don't feel like that, that you don't act like that, repentance means saying, I was wrong in my behavior, but that is not who I am because of Jesus. Not Jesus, will you forgive me? But Jesus, you forgive me. And so therefore, rather than wallow in my continual self-hate, I will stand up and walk and let my eye look for the other, even though, again, I don't feel worthy to do this. I do not feel worthy to be your pastor. I do not feel worthy to be a Christian. But that doesn't matter. That's the lie. That's the lie. Nobody's worthy. Of course you're not worthy. Even after you repent and believe, you're not worthy on your own. But when Jesus Christ says, I wash you, you're not allowed to say you're not clean. Do not say it is unclean when Christ has made you clean. You are of more value than many sparrows. And the flowers that we spend so much time on, they are beautiful. There's a reason for that. The glory of looking on them. The creator's touch and handiwork. The magnificent diversity of a a what? A procedurally generating creation. And tomorrow it wilts and dies and is thrown into the fire. Well, think about how much time you spend on those flowers. And Jesus is in the throne spending more than that much time on you. That's his point. And that's why he's not just a new Moses. He's not just one more guy to give you one more way to be a better this or that. He is the only guy to be the only way to have you just be saved by him. Hmm. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. That line, 34, I mean, I've preached this text here with you all before, and, and so I know I've said this. Um, I say so many things, you know, many of them are worth pondering again, but uh, that phrase, you know, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Personally, I find it easy to take that as a condemnation. Like, well, I am, Lord. He says, do not. And I am, Lord. So at a certain point, like, am I a believer since I don't believe this? Since I can't seem to believe this? What's going on, Lord? Do I have the Holy Spirit? That again is approaching God as if he's Allah, or as if he's Vishnu, or as if he's Zeus. And he's none of these things. He's not like them in any way. Mm. Instead, what Jesus means is that there is actually nothing for you to honestly be afraid of tomorrow. And all of your fears are self-invented fears. That's what he means. It's not that you have to try to not be anxious and you'll feel better then. Is that all of your anxiety is a made-up story you tell yourself. And you listen. And you believe it. And you feel bad because of it. Instead, tell the story that Jesus might not come back. Or excuse me. Don't, don't say that. Tell the story that Jesus might come back this afternoon. Now, why are you worried about tomorrow? Let's try it again here. Okay, we're going to do a couple of these. This is my favorite one. I, I've been doing this a lot recently. So when I'm really rough, I'll, I'll find Sky. Fast as I can. Find Sky. 
I'll get my eyes in the sky and I'll remember. Just as he said he would go, or as he left, right? So he will come. And no man knows the day or the hour, which we know full well means it could be like any moment or it could be a very long time from now. But since it could be any of those, I mean, seriously, it could be in five seconds. And what better than to be at church, listen to a great sermon and go to paradise, right? So like in one, two, three, four. But now the thing is not that I expected him to come, although I hoped he did. I wanted him to. I asked him to in my head. I'm begging him, please, can we end it now? I'll get out of this sermon. No. Um, but more important than that, I mean, it's from that, from that fruit of hoping comes a turn back to tomorrow, wherein tomorrow is not as big as I felt. When you remember that tomorrow may never come, tomorrow is put in perspective. When you believe that tomorrow is up to you, tomorrow is a monster. And next week and next year, and especially in the fragile situation our society finds itself in right now. If I have to rely on me tomorrow, next week, or the next year, I'm pretty sure I'm in a great deal of trouble. But to know that, what Jesus says is not only I might come back before then, so you can comfort yourself with that, but that also when it comes to tomorrow, don't worry. I'm God. I got it covered. You are of more value than many sparrows. I think you're with me. You, well, Somebody testify. Yeah? You know the feeling of doubting whether you're worthy. Can somebody testify to that? Yeah, it's real, right? That lie is real. And you also know the hope. He is risen. Hallelujah. So you believe that. So you know the war. You know the battle. It's inside. It's not outside. It's inside. And the reason it's inside is to get the lies you hear and see and tell yourself to stop so that out of you might come truth. That's the lifelong walk of the Christian. Press the flesh down, open up the font, which is this perfect word of God that can never run out of what it needs to say to you. What it needs to say to you, for you, uh, to lift you up and build you. I skipped over there, verse 33 and 32. I want to mention just two points on these. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. Again, it's not about how if you try harder, it'll happen. Seek him with all your heart. Like me, you haven't done it enough. Try one more time. And there are churches where it's like that. You haven't spoken in tongues yet. Well, you better pray some more. You have to work a little harder at it. He'll, eventually, he'll get back to you. But no, no, that's not what's going on here. It's just that every day, the fact of the matter is, you remember that Jesus in, is reigning, that everything you have is actually good enough because it's all going away anyway. And as your amnesia sets in, which it always does, you forget that he's reigning, you end up back in fear. So the discipline... The discipleship of the Christian is learning how to take these words that your pastor can preach to you once a week and take them with you out there and preach them to yourself. So you can start, well, fighting back, fighting back. I want to give us a little bit about these other two texts this morning as well. Uh, Romans chapter 6 and then uh, the Ten Commandments text from Exodus 20. I think we'll start with the Ten Commandments text because it's, it's, there's a lot here I can't, I don't think I'll possibly get into all of it. One of the uh, the big shifts that you just have to notice if you're a Lutheran. Like you came into Lutheran church, you've learned the catechism, you've memorized what we call the Ten Commandments, and you hear this read and you're like, wow, it's a lot more than what I had memorized. Where'd all that come from? And yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's quite a long text with more than 10 
commandments in it. Now, depending on how you count, do they have to have a you shall, or does remember the Sabbath day count as one, right? And does I am the Lord your God count as a commandment? That's a debate that we could have. Um, but no matter how you do it, you have none le no less than 14 different statements. 14. What makes this, I mean, weird is God says there's 10 and that there's 14. What do you do with that? Well, what we do as Christians is we argue about the numbering. <laughs> so we have different numbering sets and, and we all say ours is right. Yeah? And most of us have cut out pieces of the text, which is for memorization's sake and understandable. It's much faster that way. But what I, I like about this text and opening it here is it's really going to give you a chance to see what is the commandment? What is he about? What does he want us to be? Or to put it differently, what has he promised life will look like when he comes back? And this is it. That he will be our God. That alone is a pretty big deal for God to walk with us, to be in our midst, to have Jesus walk around. Oh, that's one to hope for. And then having him, you shall have no other gods, no idols, no other hopes, no other promises, no other one who is over you ultimately. Doesn't mean hierarchy's gone. Doesn't mean brothers and sisters aren't true anymore. But it does mean that there is none who is greater than he. No other God. And then, well, does the next you shall get a new commandment or not? And that's where the debate starts in about whether or not you allow statues in church and things like that. It says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Now, the fight about icons and images, statues, and whether Christians can have statues or pictures at all um, is one most Americans probably don't think about much anymore. But it used to be a really big, big fight. And, and can be, again, if you pay enough attention to this, because, I mean, it says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. There's a carved image sitting right over there. It's a man on a cross. And so, so are we breaking the commandment or not? And there are definitely Christian traditions out there that would say, oh, yeah, we are idolaters. Right there he is. That's our idol, Jesus on the cross. Now, I think you and I know that's a piece of wood. Jesus is in heaven, and he's going to be in the bread and wine soon. And they'd call the bread and wine worshiping an idol, too, you know, receiving Christ there. And that kind of shows you where their sacramentology is. But, kind of digressing from that, um, what is important first to know is that God's prohibition against carving images in Israel was not strictly a, pro a prohibition against images, because he then later will command them to carve images. The temple is filled with images. The tabernacle has images. They're just the ones he said to do. And he says, go, go and do what everybody else does, which is to pick some other part of creation and create an image to remind you of it so you might trust in it. So it really isn't about the statue. No one's got statues in their houses they're staring at these days. Just the talking screens. And it's really not about the talking screens, although today it kind of is. But it's about where you trust and what you believe. Now, I do like the Eastern Orthodox answer. They won't make a statue. They still want only flat stuff for the most part, you know, icons. But I like their answer about, like, the image of God had something happen to it when Jesus was born. The image of God eternally has never had a problem, but the image of God in man has had a problem since Adam ate the fruit. And then when, when Christ became flesh and dwelt among us, 
Well, now, regardless of what happens to you and me and the rest of us, the image of God in man is restored in him without the cross, just in him. He is God. And so if you make a picture of Jesus, it's a picture of God. And that's where in the crucifix for my money is about the clearest picture of God you'll ever see. Now, I'll show you. I, I carry around, because I'm a son of Solomon now. It's this prayer discipline we do. I carry this crucifix with me just to try to like test myself a bit. It's from uh, James May in Africa, who we support. And it was made by an African man. And so uh, there's a black Jesus on it. And, and I, I really like the black Jesus on here especially because, well, Jesus was a Jew. He was neither Anglo-Saxon nor African. He was a Shemite. Um, but it really doesn't matter. I don't have to have this look just like Jesus really looked to know that the crucified man is a picture of my God. It's not about what his legs look like, what his face looks like. It's the fact that that's what happened to him. And this won't let you forget that to the level where you'll almost be embarrassed about it. I mean, I just confess it's kind of weird to carry the crucifix around, but I'll tell you, when I get out of the car and walk into the store, holding this thing in my hand, you know what it really is? Terrifying. Embarrassing. Shaming. You know, I'll leave it in the car this time. It'll be faster. I won't have to worry about it. I find that interesting for me, my heart. So wait, wait, it's a piece of wood. What am I worried about? The other funny thing is the more I've gone past that, like I, I, I want to put it down. You know, my flesh is at me. I'm weak. Yada, yada. So, oh, I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll take it. I walk in. And wouldn't you know someone said, hey, what's that? That happened twice this week. Hey, what's that? Can you tell me about that? I told them about the Sons of Solomon prayers. I wasn't expecting that one. I, I thought they were going to like persecute me or something, right? Like laugh at me. Right? Instead, they wanted to know. Tell me about the crucified man. I wasn't ready for it. I hope to be better prepared next time. But the point here again is that you can remove all the statues and then put up pictures of your family and watch TV and you're still an idolater. Because if you're not a Christian, you're an idolater. And if you are a Christian, you're a Christian. And so your task through life is to keep pushing the idols back from your heart. And what was our idol once may not be an idol later, but there may be another one there. And as long as Christ leaves you here on this earth, he's not going to stop pointing that out to you. He's not going to stop showing you your idolatry in your face, lest it take you over. Lest the scepter of wickedness rest upon your heart so that you would reach out your hand until final iniquity. Christ surrounds you with his own suffering. He binds you to the cross. He makes you see and feel what he felt, which is a world that hates you and a world that doesn't love justice and a world that cannot see God. And you get brought into that. But what you do get to see, then, is him. The world doesn't see God, but you do. The devil doesn't believe God is for him, but you do. And this, again, makes you a Christian. This makes you a little Christ, an anointed one, a person set apart, pulled out of the chaos, removed from the flood, snatched from the fire, and absolutely tied to the invincibility of Jesus' resurrection. Now again, the statue of Jesus on the cross won't do anything for you. However, it is not forbidden to be remembered or to be reminded by a picture of Jesus of what he did for you. Yeah? And so that's what the crucifix becomes is a focus, a focus. All right, so Lutherans, we tend to think that this you shall not make carved images is basically the same commandment since we got to try to get to 10 somehow, basically the same as don't have other gods. Whatever you do, 
Don't have other gods. And remember, the promise in Christ on the last day, you won't. You're going to have some from out of them, but he's sufficient. He's going to show them to you. You're going to repent of them continually. You're going to rise every morning new. And then on that last day, it's all what it's supposed to be. Where then also, you know, you will remember the Sabbath day and these things. I'm skipping so much of this text. Uh, bowing down to serve them. Uh, oh, the bit about jealousy, though, that's really worth digging into, too. What does it mean that God is jealous? What does it mean that, that God is unwilling to let you be with other gods? And we all know that jealousy is kind of a bad thing, right? Like, and in relationships, it's certainly destructive. Uh, it makes it so that distrust exists. So how can God be jealous? That's the question. Well, God's not us. How, when we think of jealousy in relationships, we think of two sinners, one or both of whom are probably both wrong. When God is jealous, he's jealous of your being wrong. Not so that it's right, but he thinks it's bad that you're wrong. And he can't stand that he made you for such good things and that now you're choosing bad things more. You're giving bad things to your children. He doesn't like that. It makes him jealous. I'm the God who can help you. Those things will destroy you. And yeah, so he lets it go. When you reject Christ, when you walk away from the faith, when you decide to be an idolater and not listen to the word, he will let your children do whatever your children do. To the third and fourth generation. The good news in all of this is that for the Christian, that's not the promise at all. That promise is for those who decide not to be Christians, who decide to ignore it when their pastor says repent. For those who hear what I'm saying today, somebody testify, the promise is that for a thousand generations, for a thousand generations, three times ten, Trinitarian number, full completion, complete perfection in all things, there is not a single person that Christ is going to save who won't be saved. There's not a single question mark by any name of those elect, whether or not they will be there. That confidence is yours to know you're in it. To know you're in it. That you are the elect. Again, this is what baptism shows, and we'll get to that Romans text here soon in a moment. But the jealousy of God, which visits sin in this world on and on, is so that in that sin he can visit to redeem from it. It's so that even to the third and fourth generation, he might send his word in again. Because the God who is Christ, while he will punish evil, would much prefer to punish it without killing you and destroying you forever. He would rather just burn it all down and raise you up. And again, it's already done. It's already done in Jesus. All you got to do is hang out and endure the rest of the garbage while we wait for Christ to return as a training ground wherein he promises to tell you and teach you how to pray. How to pray. How to see with his eyes. How to see with his eyes. How to not bow down and serve other gods, but serve him. Verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Normally, just second commandment for us Lutherans, right? The idea here, though, uh, that he will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Heard it yesterday. So in a conversation with someone, and out it came. Jesus Christ, that, that, that. And I... I still don't know what to do in those moments. I'm, I'm, I'm a good American. I want to be nice. I don't want to offend him. He just offended me. I don't want to be offend him. So I haven't yet been able to say like, this would be a good one though. Jesus Christ, he will not hold 
Oh, how I lost it. I want to memorize it. He will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Maybe quite a thing to say on the spot to someone who cursed, don't you think? I'm not sure I'm there yet. What I want you to see, though, is it's a real, it's not a small thing. Every time they're calling down the wrath of Jesus on them, it's true. They're asking for hell. How do you warn them? Well, that's not easy. I don't know. I don't know. But you want to see it. You want to recognize what a big deal it is. And you want to see also that the name of Jesus is not meant to be silenced. It's meant to be used. Hallelujah, Jesus Christ. You're supposed to pray to him, not not pray to him. The Sabbath day, keeping it holy, the word of God coming to you. Oh, goodness. Do you notice how it's really not about just Saturday? Do you notice how, from Moses' perspective, it's about creation? Even, goodness, six-day creation? It's just, it's just one more of these amazing points with the skeptics. Once you let the skeptics start, they never stop. So somebody comes along and says, I'm a Christian. I believe everything you believe. I just believe in evolution too. It's okay. We'll be fine. There's no difference. Okay. So, so you don't believe in a six-day creation. No, no, no. It's just a story. It's, it's a metaphor. It's a picture. And it teaches us things. Okay. What's it teach us? Well, they never answer that the same way. But anyway, on they go. The question is not, like, if I accept that from you, my question is not that, like, okay, you're going to go to hell because of that, because of it. My question is, when do you start believing it's actually true? Because at this point, you've got to get past Exodus 20 before you can start believing it. Because here it says six days again. So this must be a metaphor too. It doesn't fit. It's, it's not right. It's, Moses was mistaken about his understanding. The, the Sabbath day is not because the creation was created in six days. The Sabbath day is, well, they don't go that far. They just talk about Genesis 1 and act like they're smart. The flood, the resurrection of Jesus raising children from the dead, turning water into wine. At what point are you going to just say, he's God? And at that point, if he made the world in six days and we can't figure it out with our little instruments from here, well, who cares? Can you get there? Are you going to go back? No, you're here today. What does what you think about the creation of the world change about today for you? If you think it was evolved, what does it change? What does it help? But let me tell you, if you don't believe the Sabbath day is a day you're supposed to go to church and hear the word of God exists because God created the universe that way, and if you lose that, you lose everything, you miss the point. So the point's built on what we really are, time-bound people in which God has made a day for himself in our midst, and it's commanded. Now, again, I like to imagine what this is going to look like in paradise, wherein on the eighth day, which is everlasting day, somehow we go and come from the place where God gives us word, back to the places where our families and our tribes and our peoples are, and we farm and we surf and we explore and we live in the creation. And then we come back up to the city where the light is and we see Christ again and we feast again and out we go and up we come and out we go and for all forever. The life you want now, the life you want now, that's what the Sabbath day is about remembering. Moving on from there, the work and all this, there's so much to say. We're getting low on time and I want to get to Romans. Honor your father and your mother that your days may, uh, that your days may be long in the land. Uh, I think what that means is not that like if you disobey your parents once or twice or 15 times, you're going to like die of a heart attack early or something. No, it's, it's, it's not about that. Um, it is about how a society without authority is a society without Order is a society that will be conquered. So if you are a people who disobey your parents and do whatever you want instead as a people, within 40 years, you will be unable to defend yourself. 
and you will not live long in the land because you will be disorderly, reckless, chaotic, and foolish. This happens again and again through history. And yeah, does it look like we're doing that on purpose to ourselves right now with a massive media conglomerate event? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Totally. But again, first, don't assume everyone's as deep as you, as you think they are. Don't think everyone's as idolatrous as you think they are. And then second, don't be an idolater yourself. Take hold of the life to which you have been called and know that for such a time as this, you've been given to stand. So that whatever happens to the orders around us as they collapse, we shall not separate ourselves from the orders God has given us that will survive the collapse of nations. Orders like father, mother, child, family. Orders like husband, wife, marriage. Orders like preacher, hearer, Christians. Those things will never go away. So to honor father and mother is to see where God has built those orders, those principles that will never go away into creation. He gives you the first one. It all starts with all humans come from father, mother, father, mother. Hmm. You shall not murder. You'd think that'd be clear, but abortion is a bit difficult. You shall not commit adultery. You'd think that'd be clear, but pornography is one of the most successful things on the planet. You shall not steal. Hmm. I'm not even sure what stealing is these days, depending and they tell you you stole something when you like bought it four years ago and now you want to have to subscribe for it. I, I don't even know when it comes to the digital world. But I know that when it comes to my neighbor, what stealing is really about is not about whether I go and take my neighbor's stuff, although that'd be bad. The real thing is, do I protect my neighbor's stuff? Do I see my neighbor's stuff as my neighbor's stuff? Do I see my neighbor as my neighbor? And so why would I not want my neighbor to have a better life than he does now? There's a great Roman proverb uh, a rising tide lifts all ships. The idea is that if you're in the harbor and the water goes up, like every ship goes up too. So if, instead of worrying about making your ship go up, try to help the tide rise. Try to help the whole group do well. Uh, do not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. I mean, his name is the most important thing to him as well. When you smear or slander somebody else's name publicly and they're not there, it's a great harm to them. And it will break the neighborliness, right? It will break the neighborhood. And then there's all the things about coveting. You wouldn't even know what it was till he told you, you shall not covet. But all the things about coveting are indeed there to show you how wretched and idolatrous your heart is. At the end of the day, you're not satisfied. But at the end of the day, Jesus, Jesus is satisfaction. You follow me? Satisfaction, the wrath of God, vicarious atonement, all done. And then having come through the Ten Commandments, thank you for your patience in the heat this morning. Romans chapter 6. I'm going to do two things from this text. First, I'm going to show you what I drew last year when I was studying it. See all the red and the blue on there? You can see all that in there? Lots of circles. That's because I noticed that, I mean, there's a lot of things going on, but I noticed that there were a couple of words that showed up over and over again. I did this for you last year. I'm, I'm going to read it again. Same, same thing. I'm just skipping words, though. Romans 6, only certain words. Baptized into Christ Jesus baptized into death, baptism into death, Christ raised from the dead, newness of life in a death like his, in a resurrection like his, crucified with him, no longer enslaved, died with Christ, so live Christ being raised from the dead, never die, death, death, he died, he died, life, he lives, he lives, you dead, alive in Christ. There's a very, very central point to the text. 
There should be no question for you if you're a Bible-believing Christian what baptism does. It puts you into the body of Christ in his death. The moment before he dies, transcosmically as a promise, God's plan for all eternity. You're in the body of Christ, dead. Which means you can live the rest of your life knowing you're already dead. Punishment for sin, done. Everything God wants to do to you because you were bad, already done. What remains is that you are in Christ. And everything God wants to do to you, even if it looks bad, is for good to come. It is for resurrection to come. It is for you not to be with those who become luxurious and easy in this life and grow discontented and covetous and proud. Rather, it is for you to keep walking on the narrow and very straight and very level path of his word. So he baptizes you into this confidence that you might know you're a member of the kingdom. You're an heir. Do you remember the uh, story about uh, the wedding feast, parable of the wedding feast? The guy sets the wedding feast. He says, people come to it. Nobody wants to come. He says, go out into the streets. Get everybody you can. They all come in. One of them comes in. He doesn't have a white robe on. Now, in the ancient world, when you were invited to a wedding, you often got a clothing to wear. It was part of the gift sometimes. So that means that this wedding party had an invitation. It said, you come because I, I'm going to give you this robe to wear. But this guy tried to get in without the robe. He tried to get in without the death and resurrection of Jesus. He tried to get in saying, you don't need to wash me, Jesus. Or maybe even water can't wash me, even with your word. He refused what God said. And what happens in that parable? He's cast out into the outer darkness because he doesn't believe that he needs Christ to go to heaven. Quite the other way around, he believes it's on him to do it. And that's why he can't stand watching the baby be baptized. Because the baby being baptized is pure grace. And what he wants is works. What you want now is to see that that liar is in your heart too somewhere else. You may understand infant baptism, but the liar who said to you earlier today, you're not worthy, same liar, same lie. He doesn't want you to believe that Jesus is enough. Straight up and period. And then again, that's where then when you believe, when you are given to know your baptism into Christ is enough. You've been buried and raised with him to live a new life now. This is the confidence to be special, to be different, to see a world that says, you're wrong, and say to that world, no, I'm not, because he is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Long sermon today, amazing good text. I pray that through all of this, it has been a comfort to you rather than a hindrance, that you don't hear me giving you lists of things to do, but insisting to you that Jesus has done it all in such a way that today has enough. And yeah, today, do you have to worry about those Ten Commandments? Absolutely. It's enough. He's with you. It's all going to be good. And now you're binding with him one more time in the food. In Jesus' name, amen.